Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. This Quietcast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes Very explore optimistic. new and <laughs> challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, nah, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't define me by what I do in bed. Do you think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my God. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. He rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. Give us. Hi, friends. I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, my beautiful friends. I can't see you, but I know you're all beautiful. So hello and welcome back to the New Evangelicals podcast. It's so good to have you with me. On this episode, I interviewed Scott McKnight. Yeah, that's right. The one and only. Scott's a pretty prolific writer. Uh, One of his books, The Blue Parakeet, really uh, helped me understand the Bible and the Christian tradition in a very different way when I was going through some of my early deconstruction uh, moments. And so I was so grateful to have Scott back on. He wrote a book called Revelation for the Rest of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. This is a very interesting conversation because Scott has a different take than Bart Ehrman has on Revelation. Now, if you want to listen to my conversation with Bart, who wrote a book called Armageddon, about Revelation. Go back a few episodes and find it. It's it's worth listening to. Uh, and this will be a very different take, but I think a very helpful take as well. Scott and I talk about just how Revelation has been misused and abused and how we need to see it as a critique of empire and as Christians, our obligation to critique the empire. And if you are um, wondering if we go into that topic, yes, we do. So I will let Scott and myself uh you know, answer how we talk about that topic for you in just a few minutes. But I want to say, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. And friends, thank you so much for your support, for sharing the podcast, for listening. If you can give us a rating and a review on you know, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, whatever, that would be so, so helpful. And if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people who are going through a crisis of theology. They're trying to renegotiate their faith to become a better Jesus follower. And that's what our uh, organization does as a nonprofit. And we offer all of our content totally paywall free, which means there's no Patreon. There's no monthly subscription you have to pay to get all of our content. We're able to do this because of the generosity of people like you. So you can click on the show notes or the link in our show notes and you can uh, donate there. All donations are tax deductible in the US. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Scott McKnight. Talk to y'all later. 
Big news, friends. The podcast is heading back to Theology Beer Camp hosted by Trip Fuller. Now, Noah and I went last year, and it was an amazing time. We met so many of you, and we're doing it again this year in October. You'll get to hang out with podcasts like ours. You have permission with Dan Koch, The Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns and Jared Bias, and so many more. And there are amazing scholars like Adam Clark, Thomas J. Ord, and John Dominic Crossan with more speakers and podcasts to be announced. The sooner you you get tickets, the cheaper they are. In fact, if you use promo code TNEGODPOD, you'll get $25 off your ticket. Let me tell you something. If you are looking for better ways forward in the Christian tradition, this is the event to come to. Yes, you get to hear from some amazing speakers and hear some amazing lectures, but the secret sauce in beer camp is that you get to hang out with these folks and listen to them in conversation. Plus, you get to hang out with Noah and I for a few days and have a great time. Use promo code T-N-E God Pod for $25 off your ticket, and I'll see you in Missouri in October with me and Noah, Trip Fuller, all the great scholars, all the great podcasts. I'll see you then. All right. Well, um, I got to say, uh, Dr. Scott McKnight, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I need to also inform you that I owe you a thank you because I read your book, The Blue Parakeet, uh, quite a few years ago, and it was incredibly formative um, for me where I was in my faith journey. And I found the book so helpful to give language um, to where I, what I was going through at the time. And it gave me a sense of obligation to, you know, as you say in the book, uh, take the Christian tradition uh, and push it in our day and our way uh, for mm-hmm. um, you know uh, a better future. So thank you for writing that book. And I'm looking forward to having you on to talk about this one, Revelation for the Rest of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident uh, Disciple. So thanks for making time. Well, thank you, Tim. And uh, it's very kind of you to speak of the Blue Parakeet. It's been a, a surprise seller for Zondervan. They, uh, <laughs> and I had a hard time convincing them of the title, Blue Parakeet. But, but I won that one. I don't always win these ones with titles. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, it's been a real fun book to participate in. Well, I, I a lot of people that 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 find us are usually in the beginning of what you could call deconstructing, but they want to stay faithful to Jesus, and that's a book I recommend all the time. Like, hey, just this is one of the ones that you need to add to your reading list and and just get a different perspective. So, again, thank you for writing it. But we're not here to talk about that book today. Today, we're talking okay. about a new book that you wrote. Um, before we do that, would you mind giving us some of your own background? You know, did you grow up evangelical, and and why this book today? We'd love to hear kind of those two things. Yeah. Did I grow up evangelical? No, I grew. I didn't even hear that word when I grew up. I heard the word fundamentalist. Mm. We were Christian fundamentalists, conservative Baptists, in the conservative Baptist. Church of America, something like that, CBA, Conservative Baptist America, Midwest, uh, Northwestern Illinois. And um, uh, then I, um, I gave my life to Christ as a high school between my junior and senior year, along with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, I began to study the Bible, read the Bible through in the first nine months. Uh, of my senior year. Well, I guess that'd be the whole senior year, but I started in the summer, in July. And uh, in the King James Version, of course. <laughs> of course. And and then um, I also got very interested in Christian prophecy. Hmm. Uh, and I studied books that my parents and church and youth pastors suggested I look at. And they were along the line of Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, although I didn't know about that book. I read a man named Salem Kurban. He had a book called Guide to Survival. And it was about how um, it was a book designed for people who didn't get raptured, found themselves in the tribulation, and needed a manual to help them live in the tribulation to know what was going on. <laughs> they think about everything, don't they? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, and I, I've heard that Hal Lindsey actually got his ideas wow. of his book from Salem Kerban's clever stuff. Huh. So that was a part of my past, and that's that. I guess that answers the question that you were asking. 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. So as you grew up, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't stay a fundamentalist forever, but obviously you're prof- you're a prolific writer. You're obviously a Christian. So what was that journey like for you? Yeah, I went through. Uh, I'm actually writing a book with a student of mine. Well, he's a graduate, and we wanted to call it the prophetic voice of deconstruction. Oh, uh, but it wasn't. It's. Uh, the the publisher is not too keen on that title. thinks it's a little too academic, and okay. uh, so we're going to have something like losing your religion without losing Jesus. Something. Mm-hmm. Like that. Well, so when I was in college, I began to read uh, thinkers like in those days Francis Schaeffer, who was critical of the American Church, and so. I was led to begin deconstructing the fundamentalism that I grew up with while I, mostly when I was a college uh, junior and senior. By the time I got to seminary, which I went immediately from college, I graduated in 76 from college, and in the fall of 76, I was enrolled in seminary. Uh, a friend of mine who also went to seminary with me, I believe it was the next year, asked me one day to write something up of what I believed. And I realized when I wrote up, it was just on a couple pieces of paper, I realized that I knew a whole lot more of what I didn't believe than what mm. I did believe. Yeah. And that is really a sign of deconstruction. And it took me several years, all the way through my PhD years, for me to come to terms with not only what I no longer wanted to believe in, but also what I did believe in. Mm. So it was a sort of a deconstruction, reconstruction process. And I have found, now maybe Tim, you know more about this than I do, but uh, I got hold of a study the other day, pretty big study, that people who use the word deconstruction are almost always involved. They don't leave the church, they reconstruct their faith. And those are the ones who like the word deconstruction. So um, I went through that phase, let's say, from 1976 to about 1983. Mm. Seven years of tribulation, there you go. <laughs> and uh, I, I, um, I came to terms with the fact that what I believed in was Jesus, yeah, who I believed in, yep. and that the church at that time for me could, was good and bad, but I wasn't committed to the church the way I was committed to Jesus. Yeah. And over time, Jesus, in, a, in many ways, has led me to the church in a more chastened form. Yeah. I love that. And I I would say, I, I'm not aware of that study. I, I would actually love to see it because I love reading those things. But I would say that my experience um, is is in line with that. Because what I tell people often is, listen, many of us are not having a crisis of faith. We're having a crisis of theology. Like, big difference. You know, I, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about losing my faith in God or Jesus. But what do I believe about this Jesus or about the Bible or about my faith tradition? Um, especially for a lot of people in my circles, I am one of these people, Scott. You know, 2016 was a moment where something was so smelly. I I had to follow the scent and say something doesn't add up in my own yeah. evangelical yeah. heritage, right? But I, I I my motivation wasn't to leave what I believed. It was that what I thought I believed wasn't wasn't matching up to the behaviors I was seeing in my own circles, right? So yeah, I think I think what you said is is really great. And I appreciate you sharing that because a lot of us are new to this journey, right? We're, a lot of people are freaking out and go, is there any, is there any hope? And we're trying to say there is, you have to keep going. But it's very possible, I would argue, more beautiful uh, to follow Jesus in different ways than maybe um, how we were, how I was initially taught. Because I grew up very much John MacArthur-ish, so very much fundamentalist, um, even yeah. though I call it evangelical uh, now. So, um, okay, so here we are. Yeah, but John John MacArthur uh, captured the term evangelical because at one time he would have been in a group that would never have called themselves evangelical because if they grew up in fundamentalism, and MacArthur did, mm-hmm. he's always been a fundamentalist. When the evangelical movement arose after Carl Henry in the 60s and 70s, they yes. were much more open-minded toward culture. Yes. And, 
and MacArthur would have chastened those, but it was only in the 80s and 90s with Reagan when Reagan got all these people back that all of a sudden these people were all calling themselves evangelicals. Yeah. I remember the days. It wasn't fair. Yeah. <laughs> I'm currently reading a book by Isaac Sharp called The Other Evangelicals. It's an amazing uh, book in history. I've been really enjoying it. And it just, for me, so helpful to understand the complicated history of evangelicalism in America. Uh, yeah. And I think you're absolutely spot on. So, yeah. um, Okay, so why a book on Revelation? I mean, I, you know, you you wrote a, a church called Tove. You you wrote the Blue Parakeet. You've written other books, and now you're tackling Revelation. Why this book, and why now? I've always gravitated to writing things about what I'm interested in, rather than what, uh, let's say, textbook type things. So I'm I'm interested in things where I think I've got something to say that needs to be said that will probably rub against the grain of American evangelicalism, etc. So mm. uh, I got interested in Revelation in high school, as I mentioned. Also in college, I started reading on the rapture question like crazy and read books on Revelation. I read a bunch of stuff. And, and I yeah. even wanted to take a course on eschatology at my Christian college, and my professor wouldn't let me in the class. He said, we'll meet once a, every other week in my office. And he said, I don't want you in the class. It'll just be between you and me. So then, really, I gave up on on eschatology because mm. I just thought it was a fruitless battle. Mm. And speculation about Gorbachev being the Antichrist <laughs> or Kissinger being the Antichrist <laughs> right. or somebody else, you know, somebody in Russia, somebody in Israel, somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I just found it to be a waste of time, and I, I kind of lost contact. But over the years— uh, as a professor, I would be teaching a course where I had to give a, a lecture or two per semester on Revelation, and I just kept thinking about it, and I read stuff about it, and I worked on it. And then all of a sudden, about three years ago, maybe, uh, one of my students says to me, in our next class, could you teach a course on Revelation? Hmm. And my response was, I'd like to, but I can't because it doesn't fit in my schedule right now. But then, like a year or two later, so this is maybe five years ago, I um, I thought, you know, I've got time to do this now. I want to work on Revelation and put together what I've been reading and thinking about Jewish apocalyptic literature, etc. And so I taught a course a couple years back um, on Revelation. I had a graduate assistant named Cody Matchett who became the co-author with me on this book. Hmm. And um, I loved preparing the lectures, took a whole year to prepare lectures, worked out the details, wow. read the major commentaries, Cody and I did, and uh, kind of sorted stuff out. And then I told Cody while we were teaching the class, I said, this is going to turn into a book. I think we got something to say. Hmm. So in about December, before the class was actually over, I started writing the book and just was writing sections. And... Um, Okay, so now that's how it happened. But the reason I wanted to is because, Tim, I'm really serious. I think the way most of my students grew up in evangelicalism with the book of Revelation was a form of divine abuse. Hmm. It was to use the Bible to manipulate people's feelings, their decisions, their will, their bodies— and I just thought, this is so wrong. I, I remember lecturing at a school one day, and I said, I think that's just total hooey, dispensationalism. And someone said, hey, our theology prof is a dispensationalist. I went, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> but um, I just thought, I think it, after reading Jewish apocalyptic literature, understanding how fiction, fantasy, that sort of literature works, the speculation of who in the modern world, Vladimir Putin, is doing what in the Bible, Revelation 13's beast, right. completely misunderstands what the book is trying to do. Right? Yeah. The book more or less identifies the city, Babylon, as Rome, and the kings of Rome are called emperors, so it's one of those emperors anywhere from Nero to Domitian. And I thought, it's not trying to be... Uh, secretive about this. I mean, a little bit, but 
you know, let the reader understand, which means, you know, you can figure this out if you're thinking about it. Right. So I, um, I just thought the people were, it was totally wrong. And I wanted to provide a different approach along the line of some of the other thinkers who don't, who don't write as accessible prose as I thought I could write. Mm. And uh, so, and I think the, uh, to be frank with you, I think the speculation approach of dispensationalism that is so popular on TV destroys not only the message of the book, but it destroys the opportunity to develop uh, a way of living that discerns political corruption, whether it is in Washington, D.C., Berlin, Cape Town, or in my local church or in my local community. Hmm. And instead of producing escapists who say, ah, we won't be here during the tribulation, it produces people who have discerning capacities to become dissidents of political corruption in the world. So there you go. Um, just to, for our audience, when you say dispensationalism, you're talking about like the Left Behind series kind of way of thinking about the end of the world where the Christians get raptured and everyone who's not really a Christian gets gets left behind. Is that the idea of what you're talking about? Yep, that's dispensationalism. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, frankly, I think a lot of people who are listening grew up on that. I've, I've, I've seen the movies, et cetera. It gave me a lot of nights of uh, praying just in case the rapture was going to come back. <laughs> well, the, I wanted to be safe. Is, Tim, I don't know if you, if you noticed this. It is also so uh, tied to Americanism. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the Left Behind series not only took place in the Chicago suburbs. My daughter uh, read every volume. And laughed about it. She didn't believe it. She told me, but yeah. it's probably infiltrated her thinking. But um, the it's so tied to American politics that when you finish the this sort of left behind stuff, you begin to think that America and Israel are the true nations in the world, and all other nations are either in on the dock in trouble, or they definitely are on the side of Babylon. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, a big part of the work that we do and that I do personally is we track Christian nationalism. I mean, I, I've been to the events. I follow it very closely and you're absolutely right. In fact, there's also a book I read a little while ago. Um, I forgot the author. He actually passed away, but it was called a brief history of Christian Zionism. And I had no idea how interwoven dispensationalist theology was uh, to the reason why the current nation state of Israel even exists today. And so I think you're right. Like I think that sometimes people underestimate how powerful this way of viewing Revelation um, has been in, in our American psyche. It's way beyond just a couple movies. I mean, it really impacts politics. Politicians like Lauren Boebert, for example, have a, have an eschatology like this. And that, that impacts how they govern and what policies they advocate for. So I, I think you're spot on saying that, 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 that this topic and even this book in particular, Revelation is way more powerful as far as how it's interpreted than I think a lot of people give it credit for, frankly. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. so. You know, I, I am curious, as you were writing your lectures and your teaching on this, was, and you started doing maybe a deeper dive on Revelation for you, anything s- stick out to you? Anything surprise you uh, maybe that, 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 that you weren't prepared to, to, to read or, or interpret as you were preparing for the book and writing it? You know, uh, because you know, I've, been t- I've been a professor for 40 years, because wow. I've been teaching this kind of stuff for a long time, um, Little things are in my head, and I might make a statement, three statements in a class about it, and then move on. But it never, I never get the, I had never gotten the opportunity to dig down and write about it, and then start thinking about it and reading about it. And then, uh, so yes, there were some surprises, but mostly it was the opportunity, the freedom to start working through this book in light of the ideas that I had. All right, so mm. here, here are a couple things. Yeah. One thing that really has stood out to me uh, is that you have to read Revelation, for most of us, beginning in chapters 17, 18, and 19 with Babylon, the whore of Babylon, in order to understand what John is actually addressing, the problem of Babylon. And this is empire marked by all sorts of things, uh, and we, in, in our book, Cody and I discussed the seven marks of Babylon. Um, 
So I, that's one thing I thought, we, we got to begin there. It's not quite reading Revelation backwards like I did with Romans, but it's close. It's uh, starting at 17, not 22, although you could begin at 22. All right. The second thing that I noticed is if you read Revelation well, you have to read it as a narrative. The narrative, you know, it's it's got chunks, chapter 1, chapter 2 through 3 of the churches, 4 through 5, these visions in heaven, 6 through 16 is all about these, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, these judgments, totally interrupted, constantly interrupted with these little scenes. And then 17 through 19 is Babylon, 20 through 22 is basically New Jerusalem. Now, here's the key. I, I tell my students, if you don't want New Jerusalem, this book is not going to be of any value to you. And if you don't despise the empire of Babylon and Rome, this book is of no value to you. So if you're in a world where you're experiencing and are really bothered by injustices and you want justice, this book of Revelation is unbelievably valuable. I, saw, I just saw a tweet someone wrote to me, a, I think it was a pastor yesterday. You know, I'm not quite sure how tweets work, so I don't know if someone wrote to you or whatever. Um, the, the key thing is, that he said, I think the book of Revelation is the most relevant book in the Bible for today. Now, that was in light of, you know, this reading that I'm given. So you have to read it in light of wanting. It, it's not simply heaven, although in a Christian doctrine of heaven, it gets there. The big point is New Jerusalem is going to be justice. And the pit of Hades in the book of Revelation functions as the place where evil is destroyed. Hmm. It's not about eternal torture. That's hmm. not what's going on there. Although it uses strong language. Third thing is, uh, this is this is what I think can really help people who are, especially if they're deconstructing their faith. I yeah. think deconstructionists should love the Book of Revelation. Is it has to be read like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Chronicles of Narnia, whichever form you know you like, rather than some kind of predictive prophecy. Yeah, it's 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 fiction in a sense. It's describing all this gruesome stuff in the world that needs to be undone. The fourth thing is people need an imagination to like this book. Um, this is full of weird things. I mean, for instance, in chapter 5, John is wailing or weeping because there's no one worthy who can open this scroll with seven seals on it. And he, someone tells him, an angel tells him, uh, the Lion of Judah, he can do it. And the next thing he sees is a lamb. And then the lamb grabs the scroll from the right hand of the one on the throne. Okay. Well, lambs do not have hands. They got trotters, <laughs> right. you know, little pokers. <laughs> right. And you think, well, that's, you, lambs can't do this. And they can't right. stand on two legs and grab it with their hands. So it's it's got this sort of make-believe zaniness, bizarreness about it that gets fun. Mm. Rather than gruesomely literal, we should see this as we should read it the way we read The Lord of the Rings. Is right. Important. And um, let's say the, um, the last thing I would say is, uh, be very careful about taking the judgments of chapters 6 through 16 as literal predictions of what will happen on planet Earth. You cannot toss stars on the Earth and survive. It, it's just not going to happen. So it's, it's just it's sort of unrealistic at some level, but yeah. cool because it's beyond the literal. Yeah. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. 
I did some digging and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, I interviewed Bart Ehrman because he just released a book as well on Revelation yeah, called Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah. And his take is pretty much like Revelation is an incredibly violent book and paints a, a version of Jesus that wants to kill everyone. That's pretty much like his take in, in my interview with him. And he yeah, yeah. You know, points to his sources and he says he used to read it as more of a, you know, in a way of like, oh, like, you know. Empire bad, New Jerusalem good. But as he read it closer, he was like, this is a pretty violent book. And even even our podcast title was like, Jesus the Peacemaker versus Jesus the Executioner. You know, I mean, how do you look at, at, at how Jesus is portrayed in Revelation? What are some of your thoughts on that yeah. in particular? And, you know, frankly, just some of the violence that we see in the book. Like you said, to your point, I'm not saying it, it, we should take it literally, but there's still some violent imagery in the book itself. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, it is. Um, but here's the odd thing, you know, Bart is not alone, uh, with people who want to criticize the book of revelation and criticize dispensationalists for their literalism. Yeah. But then they opt for literalism to use against the literalist interpretation, right? I guess that's so fair. They want yeah. this to be literal. Yeah. They want this to be literal in order to get their negative point about Jesus. Um, I don't think it's literal. Hmm. So, and I don't think that those descriptions, there is, you know, there's a scene pretty gruesome of the lamb, uh, the white horse rider, that's pretty, pretty stiff stuff. But it's, it's like the Iliad and the Odyssey Hmm. and Virgil's Aeneid. It's like anything in the ancient world that is describing it. When you choose, this is the way I would respond to Bart Ehrman. And I like to read Bart Ehrman. He's quite the writer. But Same, I would yeah. say I would say this is that uh, when John chose to write apocalyptic literature, he was locked into apocalyptic literature. Hmm. And apocalyptic literature does this stuff. All of it. All of it is like this. Yes, it is violent, and it can produce people who want violence. Yeah. Um, and that's sad because I don't think that's what John would say, but this is a this is a story like Star Wars mm. and of good and evil, mm. you know? And it is a story of good winning and evil losing. And if you're gonna make it into a cosmic battle, you're gonna have cosmic scenes that look pretty cosmic, you know, pretty serious <laughs> stuff. Yeah, for sure. And and so I, I think that's where I think Bart is right, and and Greg Carey is a good scholar of Revelation. He's a specialist Mm. in it. I see why they would say that John sort of undoes Rome by being like Rome. Yeah. Yeah. One-ups them. I I can see why they say that. But what happens if we turn it into fiction of good and evil? Mm. What Mm -hmm. happens then? Is, Is it then to be taken literally? It, it could be used by people in a bad way, but no, that's that's not way the way this book's supposed to be read, I don't think. I like that, and I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I knew after I interviewed Barr, I said, oh, if I'm interviewing Scott McKnight on this, I got to ask him that question, what, what his take on some of these perspectives would be, because I think a lot of us are realizing, again, just like how complicated this stuff is. And people like me who are not academics, we're not scholars, right? We rely on folks like yourself and others to, to just... Uh, help us understand on a deeper level beyond just the black and white English text and then also the culture that we were kind of taught to interpret it through. And that's kind of my next question for you is I, I, I realized even when I was still more a conservative evangelical, I realized pretty quickly, well, if like every 50 years someone else claims to have 
this secret formula to the revel- to revelation in the end times. I mean, in my case, it was Harold Camping was one of them. I think about I listen to on the radio all the time. Campion? Yeah. You know, all the time. <laughs> I, right? remember, I remember it was an 88 or something like that. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and then I, I think to myself, like, and maybe this is more just, I'm asking for your speculation. Um, but why do you think this, like every generation, there are people who knowing that people before them have done the same thing and have totally missed it still insists that no, they have a new interpretation of revelation that definitely predicts the end of the world. And this is, this person's definitely the antichrist. Like why this cycle that we find ourselves in, I feel like every couple of years, it, it, I, I just don't understand it. Well, Tim, you're right. This is a really, this is the irony of the interpretation since the medieval days. And, um, uh, so yes, Every generation has its predictors who think this, they've got it and uh, they're proven to be wrong. Okay, here's, here's the big thing. Yeah. Everybody who's operated in reading the book of Revelation this way has been proven to be wrong. Yeah. Okay, so we need to start there. Hmm. Something's wrong if everybody is always wrong. Okay, so, <laughs> right. let, me, so let me put it this way. They had their chance to read the book of Revelation right as apocalyptic, but instead they read it as predictive prophecy, and it led them to speculation. For instance, yes, Putin is an Antichrist figure, especially for Ukrainians. Sure. Okay? Yep. Yes, Hitler was an Antichrist figure for England, for Russia— for Italy, for France, for Amsterdam, for Jews everywhere, okay? Antichrist figure. The Antichrist predicted in Revelation 13? No. And that's where they fail. Instead of saying, seeing that this book gives them categories for discerning political Mm. corruption at the level of tyranny and power-mongering and empire— They've turned it away from apocalyptic theological discipleship, mm. discernment, toward prediction. And when they do that, they are wrong, but they get everybody's attention because yeah. they think, man, maybe. I mean, I remember in 1973, I, was, I came home from college. I think it was spring break. I'm not certain. Some, uh, I'll just say it this way now, some loony bin from... Jerry Falwell's college, at that time I think it was called, uh, it wasn't called uh, Liberty University yet, I don't think, Uh, something else. Um, He came in and predicted the coming of Christ, and it was compelling by 1978. So I said to my youth pastor, do you think I should even go back to college? Mm. I mean, I was serious. I was so sold out and on fire. You know, I thought, man, I just need to go evangelize the world. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, he could be wrong, so you you better go just in case he's wrong. Well, here I am. Yeah, here you are. <laughs> F- oh, probably 50 years later, still still here, not left behind. Um, so I think um, I think the biggest problem, Tim, is that they're they're reading the book wrong. They're using mm-hmm. it for the wrong, but. I think a lot of them have discerned evil in uh, political leaders in the world who deserve to be denounced. I mean, who could be an African in South Africa and see what happened with the Reformed Church, whatever you want to call it, of South Africa with apartheid and not think that this is evil? Right. That's that's Antichrist right there. That's Babylon. That's what the book helps us do. So I really like that, that that you said it gives us categories instead of like looking for specific people, right? Who who are that one person that we're talking about? Because you're right. I mean, people can do good and bad, right? And and we see people, especially leaders, a lot of times who behave in antichrist ways, right? And that's yeah, important. Yeah. You know, one of the questions I have for you, and, and let, let's kind of bring this into like our our modern moment, right? So. Um, I, I would argue um, that that most Christians, specifically in America, um, are are not living um, 
um, under the boot of the empire, right? In a lot of ways, frankly, we are the empire. Uh, Christians dominate in America regarding either in politics, it's mostly Christians who get elected, uh, to uh, having our own industries, our own publishing, music, movie industries. We're, we're very well established here. In fact, some people argue that we're a Christian nation and and that Christians should be the ones writing the laws uh, flat out. So I, what do we do with Revelation for a group of Christians who maybe arguably are the most privileged Christians to ever exist in the world uh, with, with, with an exorbitant amount of freedom? What do we do with a book that seems like it's really critiquing what happens when empire is, is or I should say, it's critiquing from the underside of empire, not from being kind of the empire or supported by the empire. What do we do with it? Well, I totally agree with you about this Christian nationalism impulse in the United States. You know, I, I've um, had a lot of exposure in reading. And I consider myself an Anabaptist, so mm. I've often called it Constantinianism uh, because of Constantine. Sure. Uh, that's more of an Anabaptist hermeneutic. But uh, the rise of Christian nationalism is what I would call an almost pristine example of Babylon. Mm. This is Babylon. This is what the dragon wants. He wants people in the Capitol building threatening to tear down the place and to think they can make it a Christian nation. Jesus doesn't win with a sword in his fist, but by the word that comes from his mouth. That's, the, that's a huge difference there. Mm. And uh, violence is not the way of the lamb. The way of the dragon is violence. So to me, the capitulation in the Reagan years, in the 1980s, yeah. of evangelical Christians to the Republican Party, and it has become radicalized in American culture yeah. to the point of Republicans are right no matter how ridiculous it can look yeah um and republicans are christians and democrats are not and no yeah. matter what the democrats are for we're against it that's sort of right there that alignment with the Re republican party uh, i see this in lesser forms among progressives at times sure uh, but i see it especially in the christian nationalism today yeah that has been exposed by samuel perry Oh, yeah. University mm -hmm. of Oklahoma He's and great. Philip Gorski mm -hmm. at Yale, their their scholarship on this is to me just amazing and it's really, really helpful. Yep. And I was just with Samuel. I was just with Samuel Perry in Oklahoma. I, oh, I, I love that. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Um, Sam's great. I've had him on the podcast a few times. Wonderful. Oh, you have? Wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we talk pretty often because we, we both talk behind the scenes about, hey, did you see this? Did you see that? Okay. So we track well, this stuff together. <laughs> I think that this is. Uh, the, Okay, uh, Tim, I'll put it this way. Because of the Left Behind series, yeah. because of the nonsense of speculation in the populist dispensational mindset, I know Daryl Bach at Dallas is not one of these people, sure. but because of the populist understanding of this, a whole generation, two generations, have been educated in the church not to think critically of political powers, but to choose their party. And in yes. choosing the party, they're choosing God's party, God's nation. America is favored in the world, and they have failed to read the book of Revelation well, and they have failed what I call a theopolitical hermeneutic of discipleship. Hmm. They've failed it. And this is why we have Christian nationalists today. Man, I, I, I got to be honest, Scott, I, I appreciate you saying that stuff just so directly because people need to hear it. They need to hear people say what what needs to be said, you know, and I think one of the things I wrestle with, I, I would love your insight and wisdom here as someone who, you know, has, has been an academic and, and teaching for 40 plus years. I think where a lot of us struggle is we I realize that we that we live in a two party binary. All right. We live in a Democrat, Republican you know, political system. Um, and I think a lot of us would say, listen, um, we all saw what happened with Trump. Trump is like this, 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 this figure that people are rallying behind the, the, the almost like, like a cult of personality. And because of that, a lot of us have, I mean, I can say personally, I voted for the first time in my life for a Democrat in the, in this past election, I voted for Joe Biden. And I was like, okay. And I think sometimes I get worried where it's like, I don't want to come across 
like a left-wing ideologue, but in this current moment that we exist in, I I just see much better ways of being Christian and, and voting for things that I think are more committed to human flourishing by voting for a Democrat, even though I'm not a big fan that Joe Biden's running again. I, I, I'm not, I don't have allegiance to Joe Biden, right? But I think a lot of us feel stuck in this, like, well, if, if my tradition is extreme right, is me thinking that maybe Joe Biden is a better option? Is that me now becoming an extreme ideologue on the left, even though I don't want to be? How how would you speak to Christians who are feeling that tension and who want to you know, not become a fundamentalist all over again, but also realize that in our current cultural moment, we have to take a stand for something and make decisions somewhere? Okay, Tim. Um I I know that tension, and um, I remember when James Damison Hunter wrote his book called The Culture Wars. It was mm. a long time ago, but he pointed to something going on in the post-Reagan years. It was very important. He perceived sooner than most, earlier than any that I know of, that what was going on in evangelicalism was a culture war at a very significant level, and it has only gotten cataclysmically worse since then. Yes. Okay. Yes. I chose about 16 years ago, 12 years ago, not to vote. Hmm. Not to vote um, for a presidential election. Not, uh, you know, voting locally is a completely different thing. It's not a war. Hmm. I don't want to participate in the culture war of pretending that if we get the right president in Washington, D.C., America is going to be saved and it's going to bring in the kingdom of God. Sure. I am not against voting at all. I don't, I don't see a problem with that. But I don't want to participate in that. I want to maintain a capacity to critique both parties and to affirm both parties. I want to stand prophetically over against Washington, D.C. as an American citizen, uh, not pro right side of the cabinet or pro left side you know of uh, in the capital I, I don't want to stand like that but I don't have a problem with any evangelical Christian voting Democrat I don't I don't think that's a problem and here's yeah. here's the way here's why I mean other than the fact that I want to be prophetically independent so that sure. I can speak more accurately but do most American Christians realize that Virtually all European evangelicals are social Democrats. And they think our Democratic Party is right wing. <laughs> totally. I know. I was, I was in Denmark one day and a guy, and this guy who was a political theorist, he said to me, in our country, we think that it was uh, Obama. Who did Obama run against? McLean? Uh, Mitt Romney and, and McCain. Mitt Romney. Okay, this, that's who he said. He says, we think Obama and Romney are virtually identical politically. And it just proves that evangelicalism does not have to be aligned with any political party. If these people were living in Denmark, they don't even have people to vote for on, that, on what they're talking about. They're right. going to vote for a social Democrat. Right. So I think that this is... It's a, it's a massive mistake that occurred because of Ronald Reagan, the evangelical alliance of the moral majority with Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, and James Kennedy, yeah. uh, who were opposed at the time by the other Jim, Jim Wallace. Yep. Uh, and, yep. they were, and they were at odds. And Jim Wallace, I think, has been more independent than those others, but he still has been a little bit too aligned for me with a political party. Uh, bless his heart. He's sure. he's been very helpful for me over the years, but I think that we need to be much more discerning, politically, prophetically, of what it means to be a dissident disciple who follow the Lamb and who can discern the presence of Babylon wherever it begins to show up. You know, I I appreciate that. I think a ton. I think to give you just uh, we have about four minutes left, so just maybe to close the conversation. Um, I think the reason why I voted, first off, in 2016, I voted third party. I was like, hey, I can't do this Trump thing. I can't do the yeah. Hillary thing. Vote third party. I voted for Biden, and I'll probably vote for him again, because I don't think we could survive the direction of how far right 
our right wing has gone. I mean, an insurrection yeah. that happened on the 6th is, is a historical moment in our country. I and agree. I really thought that was going to be a wake-up call for specifically evangelical culture to say, what have we done? And here we are six years later, and right-wing pundits um, are only more entrenched in those spaces, pushing the same nonsense. You know, I think yeah, we could survive yeah. Joe Biden, um, or really any any Democrat that would run compared to another four years of this straight up. I mean, I, this is me talking. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but for me, I would argue borderline fascist tendencies that we're seeing in far right spaces. I mean, one example I tell people is Marjorie Taylor green who spoke at Nick Fuentes's white supremacist rally uh, took over for speaker McCarthy when he couldn't make it in the house of representatives to have a woman like that, you know, running the House session for a day, I think just shows you how far uh, one political party has moved compared to the yeah. other. So for I, me, I, I, I agree with I, you, Tim. I, but but again, I don't want to become an ideologue. I'm not saying I, I, I you're never going to see a Joe Biden flag on my front yard. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I just think in this cultural moment, I have to do whatever I can to resist what I'm seeing happening in these far right spaces. So anyway, that that's just where I land yeah. personally right well, now. And I think voting is one way of resisting. And so I, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I get nervous about joining the culture war. That that's where it, it's in, but yeah. we can speak up and we can speak out. And I have a fairly sizable platform at times. You know, I got 65,000 Twitter followers. Yeah. I can say something politically. I have a sub stack. I get, I write books. I can say, say these things. And that's, the, that's the, vo that's where I want to use my voice to speak against political corruption and when it seems like right now the choices are between DeSantis and Trump, uh, it's, Heavens. it's not looking good for Republicans uh, and for evangelical Christians who want to align themselves that way. I think that's uh, capitulation to Babylon. Yeah. I tend to agree. Uh, Scott, I appreciate you making time. Where can folks find you? You mentioned you have a sub stack. You're on Twitter. Plug those channels away so people yeah. can find you. Yeah, I mean, Scott McKnight. I have one T and Scott on Twitter. I have a Facebook account. You can find me easily there. And on Substack, it's, you know, my name with Substack. And uh, I, I send something out every day of the week. Awesome. Well, World friends, without end. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> I, amen. <laughs> friends, the book is Revelation for the Rest of Us, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. Scott, I appreciate your time. Thank you for making time. And I'm sure we'll talk again. So keep in touch. Thank you, Tim. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list for me.